This episode is brought to you by Know Your Company. Got 25 to 75 people in your company? Check out knowyourcompany.com, software that helps companies like Airbnb know their company better. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 47 of Blastro Podcast. My name is Dottore Belordo. I'm a man of science. And today, here in the pod chamber, I'm very excited because we have a special guest in the heist. I turned Scottish for a second. Here in the pod chamber sitting across from me is a Chicago artist, a producer, a human being. It is my distinct and distinguished pleasure to introduce Betsy Palmer. Welcome to Blaster Podcast. Well, thank you, Detore. Of course. Now, this is your first time on Blaster Podcast in the pod chamber. It is indeed. However, you are aware of my idiot roommate. I yeah I do know your idiot roommate. I've worked with him quite a bit actually for several years. To several, one might say many. Perhaps too many. <laughs> Betsy, you're not just here to shoot the shirt with me. You are here to talk about a very specific tropic. We're gonna get into the guts of cannabis, and by that I mean Marinama. Close. Pot'll do. <laughs> Pot'll do, pig. <laughs> now, <clears throat> before we delve into that, let me take another backspace on this web browser. Come in and know me better, ma'am. What are you into? What are you all about? Uh, lots of things. I also am into lots of things. Things are cool, right? Right! It's strange that we haven't seen each other at the lots of things meetings. That's true, uh, but there are lots of things at the lots of things meetings to discuss, and Think about. Yeah, it's hard to, you know, see over some of the things sometimes. It's like in Harry Potter with the room of requirement. When you go in, it's just full of stuff. It's true. And you need all of it. You need absolutely all of it. <laughs> Do you think that promotes materialism in our British youth? It's possible. Uh, certainly doesn't promote, like, good systems of storage. No, it certainly doesn't. Uh, oh, well, you know. The Brits, they're charming, but perhaps uh, not famous for their organizational skills. That's fair. Who's famous for their organizational skills? Let's stereotype some nationalities. Uh, I don't know. I mean, me, for one. You asked about what I'm into. I'm into organizing things. Are you into organizing? I am. Did you read that book by the Japanese lady that says if you don't feel something, you got to throw it out? I uh, have been told about it a bunch, um, but... I kind of believe in that. Like I, uh, so my general rule is: if a thing isn't expensive, or rare, or in some way unique, you don't need it. Like if you can replace it, then it's better to have the storage space. Huh. Um. So every once in a while, I go on what my partner calls a rampage and get rid of everything. You go on a, an anti-capitalistic rampage and get rid of all your stuff. Basically, yes. <laughs> are, you, are you a fight cub? A fight cub? Yeah, you remember that movie with Brad Pink? Uh, I mean, I, I can't talk about that. Oh, 
Of course. It's the first rule. What's the uh, second rule? Bring cookies. That's a, I want to join that cub. <laughs> right. Go Cubs. Um, now, one place we are not going to go mm-hmm. <clears throat> is deeper into your backstory. Because we're going to go forward into the realm of science. Are you prepared to go on a, a magical journey with me? Delving into this, this highly fraught, hot-button topic of marijuana? I would love to do that. <laughs> Me too. I wish someone would do a podcast about it. Jetsy, do you know what time it is? What, what time is it? It's time for learn. Time for learn. We're going to learn all about marinara mama. I would love to learn about marijuana. What is marinara? Uh, marinara is um, a sauce. We're not here to talk about sauces. We're here to talk about the drudge. I, I think what you meant was marijuana. That's always what I mean. That's always what you mean. That's it true. It is heavily implied in my subtext. <laughs> well, so, Dottore, marijuana is a plant. Um, its scientific name is cannabis. Uh, and there are two varieties. So you have cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. Uh, and it's thought to have come from uh, India, possibly in the northern regions of the Himalayas. It is an annual, so it means it dies after a year. You have Aww. to replant it. Yeah. It's sad. It's a little sad. But, yeah. you know, also happy because you get new baby plants. Do you get new baby plants? Uh, if you plant them. Oh, you okay. do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah. have time for that. When it produces two kinds of flowers, there are male flowers and female flowers. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they even grow on the same plant. Um, and it has been reported to grow as high as 25 feet when Whoa. it's in the wild. So it can be a huge plant, although usually it's smaller when people are growing it purposefully. Yeah. This plant contains lots of chemicals, hundreds and hundreds of chemicals, but 109 of those are what's called cannabinoids, and those are the ones that we're interested in today. The strongest one is THC. THC, with the learning channel. Not quite. The learning channel. (laughs) What THC stands for? It stands for Delta 9 Tetrahydrocannabinol. That's $15 word, I'll tell you that much. It is indeed. It sounds very like a Star Trek-y. To me. Delta 9. Yeah, it sounds like one of those quadrants. Uh-huh. Yeah. The reason that we're interested in THC as part of marijuana is that that is the part that affects your brain. Whose brain? Uh, well, yours or anybody who's in- who ingests marijuana. Hmm. Um, and it does this in a really fascinating way. Let's go into your brain. Oh, no. Oh, not again. <laughs> so in there, you have neurons. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the cells in your brain that allow you to process information, right? Of course. We are all scientists here. We are familiar with how the barn can train neurotransmitters and neurons and little chemical signals jump across the gap in between the two and make your body do things. Correct, yeah. Correct! (laughs) Well, and so the ones that we're interested in specifically are the cannabinoid receptors. And those are focused in three different areas of the brain. Uh, There are a bunch of them in the hippocampus. Uh, There are a bunch of them in the cerebellum. And there's a bunch of them in the basal ganglia. Your body makes its own cannabinoid. I make my own here in my own literal sweatshop of my body? You do. And it is a neurotransmitter? It is. And it specifically activates the neurons that THC activates because THC is mimicking anandamide. 
a non-demide. Yeah, it's pretending like it's something your body makes naturally. Huh. Yeah, and so when it makes those connections for you, uh, a number of things start to happen. Uh, your eyes might dilate, and that might make colors look more bright. Uh, you might have distorted perception. You might feel lightheaded. Uh, the dopamine levels in your body might go up. Uh, which would produce feelings of happiness and contentment. Uh, but some people also have anxiety and paranoia. Uh, you might get an increased heart rate. A lot of it just depends on who you are and how your body works and this particular strain of marijuana that you've ingested. A lot of these symptoms are just typical things of my everyday life. Well, that can also be true. I and mean, they vary in intensity for everybody, too. Depending on your barn chemistry. Your barn chemistry is important. Now, you were saying the word ingested. I, I thought the only way to consume Marganonymous was to smoke it out of a crack pipe. Wow, there's a lot there. Hungry for blood! <laughs> um, well, so you can, you can smoke marijuana, and that's probably the most common uh, thank you, way finally. of people ingesting it. Uh, you can also eat it. Uh, which is a lot more common now that uh, it's become legalized in some states. A lot of people prefer that to smoking it. Uh, but they take different amounts of time to affect people, and it may feel a little bit different. Uh, so if you smoke marijuana, uh, you breathe the smoke into your lungs, mm -hmm. the alveoli, exchange it, and put it in your blood. So and normally what they're doing is uh, adding oxygen to your blood when you breathe in. It's taking the THC and doing the same thing. So that THC is sneaking in, disguised as oxygen, mm -hmm. and getting a sweet piggyback into the bloodstream. Yep, and from there it goes to your brain <gasps> and does all the stuff we talked about before. The perfect crime! Yeah. Uh, and that takes seconds. It's almost instantaneous. Whoa. But if you eat marijuana, uh, it still goes into the bloodstream and eventually to your brain, but it can take a while. It can take 30 to 45 minutes uh, because your body has to digest it some first. But hey, that's like the same amount of time it takes for a pizza to get to your home. That's true. Do you think that that's a, a bit of intelligent design? Uh, it's possible, you know. I bet that there is like a really huge pizza conspiracy involved here. You think Big Pizza is in on the pot lobby? Yeah, and Doritos too. If I could find where Big Pizza is, I would be there in a heartbeat. That's true. I would join that lobby. Yeah. <laughs> so you're saying when you ingest a marijuana log with your stomach molecules, uh, it takes longer for you to feel the effects. It does. Are the effects different when you eat the pot? Uh, yes. There are, uh, a lot of people feel like it's a little different. Uh, in general, the uh, high tends to be a little bit less, but the effects last a lot longer. Hmm. Um, so especially for people who are, you know, taking it for medical use, sometimes it's a little more manageable. Um, there is the other problem, which is that a lot of the time... If somebody has smoked a lot of marijuana in their life, but they haven't eaten a lot of marijuana, they may eat it, think this isn't working, they wait 10 minutes, and then they eat more. So there is also sometimes a problem where people get just way too high. It's a time-release formula. It's a time-release formula. you got to be careful of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will. <laughs> Betsy Palmer! We've talked about what marinama does on the brain. Yes. Right? We didn't talk about if you put it up your bum. I uh, assume that's a form of ingesting it that kids do these days. Not that I've heard of. <laughs> <laughs> well. But now I'm curious. The time is nigh. <laughs> we need to get a butt bong in action. 
Oh, boy. You need to trademark that. <laughs> the butt bomb. The butt bomb. How would it even work? I mean, so your your colon is essentially the end of the water slide of your intestines. Mm-hmm. And the pot that you eat is traveling down those intestines. So if you just really s- stuff it up there, maybe you could do a little bit of do a little bit of damage. I think there was a US president that was shot and he had to be fed rectally for the final weeks of his life. I which one was it? Do you I know? I think one of the Roosevelt There are two Roosevelts. Yeah. We're doing a very dangerous internet search right now for <laughs> President Anal Feeding. Let's see what happens. Here we go. Safe search on. Uh, a brief history of rectal feeding. Yep. I did actually listen to a very interesting. Oh, um, <laughs> oh wow. boy. We're looking at a picture of what appears. Oh, it's good. Thank God it's a statue of a child shoving something up its own butt. <laughs> <laughs> I love this podcast. Uh, where is President? I'll do this oh, man. Yeah, no, apparently um, fecal transplants are a thing. Yes. And they're insanely effective. Really? Yeah. Huh. They work like 80% of the time. Because you're introducing the biome from the fecus into uh-huh. a, a body that requires those special bacteria. Exactly. Yeah. But it's not as scientific as I would have thought reading <laughs> about it. Like, they, they, like, take one person's shit. And then they, like, blend it, and then they essentially, like, (laughs) use, like, a colonoscopy camera that's been adapted, and they, like, introduce the, like, blended feces into a new person. Oh, boy. That's insult to injury. Not only are you having, like, a long tube thrust up your bum, but you're also getting someone, you're literally taking someone's shit. shit. (laughs) Yeah. Although the particular case I was reading about, the guy um, hadn't been able to work in more than a year because of like terrible life-threatening diarrhea. Whoa! And uh, he was like completely cured in like three days. Holy crap! Like it was insane how effective it was. It's a magic bullet. Yeah, and he just like he didn't have the right bacteria in his colon. Like that was the problem. That's so weird. It's so strange. So back to our internet search about fecal feeding. It looks like it fecal feeding helped keep President James Garfield alive for 80 days after he was shot by Charlie Gitto. Shot him right in the digesters. Boy, I don't know if I'd want to live for another 80 days. His intestine was pierced, and so they deemed it unwise to feed him solid foods, and they fed him... Beef bouillon, egg yolks, milk, whiskey, and drops of opium through his rectal cavity. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, boy. Wow. Well, this podcast took a really different turn. (laughs) This isn't the research I did at all. (laughs) You never know what you're going to get. We used to have a little pumpkin man running around the pod chamber. Oh? Yeah. He faded away. As all pumpkins after the fall must, he decomposed. All That's the a... rectal feeding in the world wouldn't save him. It's a grimmer, uh, grimmer outcome than he just disappeared. You mean you mean he like died and rotted? He rotted. He yeah. was a rotten piece of garbage by the end. I mean, look, I'm just saying this so the audience knows what happened to Pump Torre Doctobin, and they don't flip out that they don't hear his mellifluous voice anymore. 
Ah, I see. Because well, now, of course, rest it's in peace. several months after his introduction. Yeah. At this point in time, right now, mm-hmm. it's probably the winter. What, when are we right now? Wait, right now? Whew! I'd estimate, like, at least December. Good. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a good December so far. It has been. Oh, thank goodness the election turned out the way it did. Oh, yes. Although there were some surprises in there. Oh, boy. I hope that our jokes about this are... aren't just sadly ironic. Yeah. Betroscopy. What are some fabrications of the plant known as cannabids? Uh, there are lots of them. Uh, so let's talk first a little bit about hemp, because you know hemp comes from the same planet. Was that the fourth of the Three Stooges? <laughs> no. It's, uh, you know, like, if you ever had one of those, like, uh, I don't know, hemp jewelry was super popular when I was in, like, middle school. It smells weird when you get it wet. Uh, yeah, that would make sense. Uh, and hemp is made out of the stalk of the plant. So it's the same plant, it's cannabis, uh, but you use the flowers to make marijuana and you use the stalk to make hemp. Um, and historically, it's hugely important. It was used to make sailcloth. Uh, it's used to make rope, uh, and it was a huge percentage of the economy for a lot of different um, countries in the, like, 16 and 1700s, in particular Britain, which is what's important to us I've here in America. I've heard of them. Yes. You know, I have a tertiary spinoff podcast known as Rue Britannia, in which I speak with a real British man. Really? Yes, we use Snipe. Oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Snipe, Sorry. huh? Thought I, yeah, Snipe. Thought I'd uh, stick that little plug in there. In case anyone had not heard of Rue Britannia. (laughs) Check that out. I had not heard of it. You should check it out. The co-host, Grant Howitt, is a charming British man. I mean, I do love a charming British man. He's a sensitive lad, and he dresses like goth death with a long black skirt, oftentimes. Uh Uh-huh. Not that you can see that on the podcast, but it's true about him. Yep. Doesn't like pants. I'm on board. He likes to paint his fingernails black. He's a game designer. That seems like that makes sense. Par for the chores. Yeah. <laughs> Britain yeah. is an, is is a nation and it is they a once nation. they once owned America. Uh yes, they in a manner of speaking parts of America anyway. Did they grow hemp in America? They did. And actually for a period of time it was legally required by the crown that farmers in America grow hemp. The uh, clown? Yep, the clown wanted it. <laughs> you uh, got to do what that clown says. Yeah. It was uh it was it was such a huge part of the economy and there's not all that much space in Britain for growing things. No, they're little. Um, we're big. Yeah, so they were using their colonies to grow a lot of that uh material. Hmm. And even today we use hemp for all kinds of things. We can use it to make uh clothing, we can use it to make animal feed, uh even biofuel. Biofuel. Yeah. So hemp is useful in and of itself. So we use the hemp to make cloths and snails. But, I mean, everyone knows that marijuana gets you high. Does it have other craplications beyond the textile industry? It does. Uh, I mean, there there is the recreational use, so for people who like to get high. At the rec center. At the rec center. Uh, but also, historically, marijuana's been used medicinally basically forever. The earliest written record we have of marijuana cultivation, cannabis cultivation, is from the 28th century BCE in China. Uh, And they've even found THC in Egyptian mummies that are 3,000 years old. Wait, did you say 28th century? 
28th century. 28th BCE. BCE. Before Christ existed. Super long ago. Okay. You see that off and on in a lot of cultures all through history. Uh, here now in the U.S., uh, we use it as a mood elevator, a pain reliever. In a growing number of states, we have legalized medical marijuana here. Uh, I believe the last count I knew was 25 states. Whoa! Uh, so yeah, we're, it's moving up. Uh, and it's prescribed for glaucoma uh, because it can reduce the pressure in your eyes. The intraocular pressure. Exactly. Oh, so painful. Uh, sleep disorders, uh, menstrual pain, anxiety, um, and also as a way to increase appetite and reduce nausea for people who are undergoing chemotherapy or for some other reason uh, are very ill. One of the earliest uh, uses of medical marijuana in this last round in the U.S. Uh, was for AIDS patients in the late 80s and early 90s. Those are old AIDS patients. Uh, well, they weren't necessarily old. They weren't in their 80s and 90s? The 1980s. I misinterpreted 1990s. You. Yeah. So there's uh, a lot of different uses for marijuana right now. There's also some claims that it can reduce seizures in some form of epilepsy and diminish cancerous tumors. But the unfortunate part of that is that we don't have a large data set. I have diabetes. Yeah. Um, medical marijuana, medical marijuana, hang 10, 420 blaze, hashtag. <laughs> Let's talk about marijuana and medicine. What do you want to know about it? <clears throat> All right. Is it a real medicine or is it just this bullshit that high guys want to throw on you? It's a lot of debate about that, really. And there's not a lot of, uh, you know, really highly vetted scientific research. Why do we not have the research? That is because we've prevented ourselves from getting it. Um, so, so. Is this like a Tyler Durden fight cub scenario? <laughs> where we're sleeping and we make ourselves not do the research at night? Kind of, actually. Like, so the problem is that in order to do good research that's going to be verifiable and you can replicate your results, you need to have a certain grade of marijuana. Like, you need to know that you're going to get the same strength and the same strain. Everything's going to be the same. Right. And so you probably need that grown in a controlled environment. Mm hmm the only place in the U.S. that's legally allowed to do that right now is the University of Mississippi. And so it's very difficult to get that research-grade marijuana and to do any kind of large-scale test. So um, a lot of the studies have pretty small data sets. But the problem with allowing larger studies is that marijuana is a Schedule One drug in the United States. Uh, which means that the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Agency, has declared that it has no medicinal value. Hmm. And as long as it remains a Schedule One drug, getting the ability, um, you essentially have to get kind of a dispensation from the government to be able to do research. And it's really difficult to get. So the first step towards knowing more about what marijuana does is to make it not a Schedule One drug, because then people could start to conduct those large-scale studies that would tell us a lot more about what's actually going on. Hmm. So there's a lot of anecdotal evidence um, that people say, this works for me, this doesn't work for me. There is a pretty good amount of data proving that marijuana is not as dangerous as we've all been led to believe, but there's not a lot in terms of, uh, like, does it actually reduce seizures? 
Yeah, I heard that some people sprayed a tumor with marijuana and the tumor dried up and died. This seems a little hocus pocus to me. Yeah, it's you know the the study that I read the abstract for um, the abstrange the abstrange yes Doctor Abstrange uh, coming to theaters this summer found that uh, people who smoked marijuana had a lower instance of cancerous cells than people who smoke cigarettes. Are we talking lung cancer or just uh, lung cancer, cancer specifically across the board? Yeah, um, and they found that they believe that smoking marijuana can reduce cancer cells. But they also found that smoking marijuana can cause cancer cells. And so it, it seemed to me like the results were uh, inconclusive. Maybe it's like radiation, right? Uh-huh. Radiation give you cancer. It also takes it away. also takes it away. Yeah. Like the mighty hand of gourd. Yep. Well, and there are some variables there that they, they don't seem to have necessarily, well, you know, they haven't necessarily accounted for. Um, for example, you know, Smokers smoke, say, five to 12 cigarettes a day. Five to 12 cigarettes a day. Um, your average person who smokes pot doesn't smoke five to 12 joints a day. And so the consumption of marijuana is generally uh, lower than the com- consumption of tobacco. And mm. that may be part of the effect about whether or not it causes cancer. Um, but, I mean, pretty much across the board, like, in the 20th century in America... We've been sold this this story that marijuana is very destructive to society and very destructive to the user. And the way people write about it now is less, but in the like 20s and 30s, people wrote about it like people write about like bath salts now. It would be like, you know, this person smoked a joint and then they murdered their whole family. Right. Like um, the propaganda film Reefer Madness. Exactly. Yeah. So they thought it caused things like psychopathy. And we know now that that's not even remotely true. Um, and a number of presidents over the years have commissioned reports on whether marijuana is actually destructive. And every time those reports have come to the same conclusion, which is that it may be mildly addictive, it may be mildly bad for your health, but in no way is it as harmful as the bill of goods we've been sold. Right. It's not PCP. Right, exactly. And and doesn't deserve to be a Schedule One drug. You know, other Schedule One drugs are things like um ecstasy, methamphetamines, uh heroin. heroin. <laughs> yeah. Uh it it's kind of a list of like which of these is not like the other. So there's this really interesting thing where the data that we have, which is pretty small, isn't in any way reflected in the laws that we have or the punishments for violating those laws. Why do you think Marinaba is still a Schedule One drug? That is a really good question and one that a I'm lot a of people are asking. <laughs> yeah. Uh, basically, the DEA is refusing to take it off being Schedule 1. And they say that they won't do that because the research doesn't exist to prove that it shouldn't be a Schedule 1 drug, to which the researchers keep saying, but you won't let us do the research because it's a Schedule 1 drug. Hmm. So it's stuck right now in this, like, infinite loop. I think, honestly, the, the fact that a lot of states are legalizing and another... I think five have ballot measures coming up this uh, 2016 election. 
the fact that more and more states are legalizing is going to force the federal government to have to make the laws agree in some way. Yeah, I'm a bit confused about what happens when a state says marijuana is legal for recreational use and the federal government says it's still a crime. How can those two things exist at the same time? It's a weird situation. And it means that the way the law is applied is incredibly subjective with regards to marijuana. So um, even in a state where marijuana is legalized, the federal government could raid an otherwise legal uh, establishment. So say someone is running a dispensary, that could be raided. And um, often, historically speaking, the federal government has done that in areas where local law enforcement is willing to assist and has kind of avoided it in areas where the local law enforcement has been unwilling to assist. That would be an interesting transaction. Where the local cops are like, fuck you, dude. And uh -huh. the, the DEA is like, well, we kind of got to bust up this thing. Yeah. Well, and I, you got to wonder if there's some like personal mishaps happening. What like kind you, of mishaps? you piss off the local cops and then all of a sudden you get raided. Oh. I mean, I don't, that's not fact. That's no, entirely would, speculation. I would wonder if the, you know, if the state police, local police are contacted by the FBI the DEA, and they say, hey, we want to raid this place in your state. Are you guys going to help us out? If you denied the federal agents, would your career as a law enforcement officer be jeopardized? It's a good question. And probably not officially, but I mean, I don't know. And, you know, there might, there are good reasons to do raids even in states that have legalized marijuana because there are rules in those states you know some of them only allow it for uh you know for medical use um and even the few that allow recreational use have specific laws that are related to that that have to do with the taxation of marijuana uh which is a huge uh you know pro on the side of legalizing um so they want to enforce that uh but also you know one of the arguments for legalizing marijuana is that by taking something that is black market and taking it off the black market, you can take money away from cartels, from, you know, from illegal trade. Blatant criminists. Right. Yes. The idea is that hopefully you can reduce things like uh, violence that may be involved in the growing and transportation of illegal marijuana. But there are still operations that are growing huge amounts of marijuana illegally, even in legalized states. And so there might be good reasons for raids, but there also might be bad reasons for raids. Even if you have a good reason to do a raid, after you've done a raid, doesn't that make you a raider? That's true. And aren't all raiders kind of bad? <laughs> Is this a sports thing? No, this uh, far from it. I'm thinking like <laughs> post-apocalyptic fiction. Oh, I see. Yes. Raiders are bad. That, Don't that's... raid. Yeah. I hope Pillaging. I never raid anything except the pantry. Yeah. When it's sausage season. Or cheese season. Cheese season. Very popular. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a little secret, Betsy. Mm -hmm. Around in the pot chamber, it's always sausage season. Well... I have ham stuck to the ceiling. It is canon. <laughs> Falls off true. sometimes mm. as its adhesion weakens based on the barometric pressure. 
So you just periodically get whacked in the head with ham? Yeah. I think of it as a startling caress. Hammed. Startling caress is my new band. Now, Etsy, we know marijuana has many useful properties. You can turn it into ham. You can turn it into an anti-pain suppository. But why is it classified in the same category as heroin and other such bad adverse drugs? I mean, what is, where did this, this badness associated with marijuana start? Well, Dottori, I think really we should go back in our time machine to the Mexican Revolution. My time machine was destroyed by Dr. Huai, oh. legally distinct from Dr. Who. <laughs> well, just imagine, it's 1910, and the Mexican Revolution has happened, and you are getting a huge influx of Mexican immigrants here in the United States. Woo! Uh, also, as we're aware here in America, uh, racism is a problem sure for us. Is. Always has been. Always will be. Uh, America. <laughs> Do you think racism will ever not be a problem? I'd like to think it won't be, but I don't I don't know. It's going to take a lot of crazy stuff to happen for racism to not be a problem in the world. Yeah. I think it's going to take the homogenization of humanity where we all are just kind of shades of the same stuff. Well, and that's, I mean... I mean, what we already are. Happen. Yeah. We're too dumb to recognize it. Well, in like in a lot of ways, like so so no matter what, people really like to otherize other people, right? Like you can't have an in-group if you don't have an out group. That's right. And in the case of the early 1900s, that out group was Mexican immigrants. And there was a huge uh, movement, a push to have anti-cannabis laws that really weren't so much about the drug, but were about using it as a way to fear monger about immigrant populations. So, you know, so so us people who have been here can be the in-group, but you're the out-group now. And yet, actually, up to that point in America, most people, if they were talking about marijuana, used the scientific name cannabis. Marijuana shows up in the first anti-cannabis laws, and it's meant to seem more Mexican. Like, it's meant to make an association between these groups. They both um, start with the letter M. Right. Of course! And there was, uh, you know, a name that, like, Mexican immigrants, uh, this was the most common form of intoxication in the era for a lot of, of Mexican immigrants, but it didn't merit the kind of response that you're getting. You know, there were a lot of... Uh, like, we talked about how people thought that marijuana caused psychopathy. So there's a lot of narratives that, like, these drugs are coming into our communities and they're making people who would otherwise be good, upstanding citizens act bad. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, this narrative is strong when it comes to young women who are interacting with men of color. So you get an element of uh, sexual fear as well that is all tied up in the racism that drives these early laws. So are you saying that the, the, the old white men in power are being stirred into a frenzy with the narrative that their women folk are going to go sleep with people of other races and those old white guys are going to get turned into cucks? Yep. 
<laughs> and, you know, it definitely couldn't be because those women were like, you know, independent beings. It's got to be because of the weed, it right? It must be an intoxicant. The women yeah. cannot choose. Exactly. And you see this over and over again when you come, when you look at cannabis laws. Uh, so, you know, the early ones are aimed at Mexican immigrants, but later on, you see, um, a lot of narratives surrounding, uh, jazz and the idea that jazz music is satanic and that it's born out of people who are smoking reefer. And so, Continually, the narrative is that people of color and people in marginalized societies are bringing this drug in that's going to, uh, you know, taint the white people. It's going to corrode the, mm -hmm. the gears of society. Exactly. Um, and there's no evidence of that really ever. Like, there are, are several reports. Um, a good example is uh, LaGuardia, you know, like LaGuardia Airport. Airport. Right. Uh, when he became the mayor of New York, he had been told that marijuana was this huge problem, that it was causing violence and sex crime and all kinds of stuff. And um, he did a big study and found that there were no relationships there, that it wasn't increasing violence, it wasn't increasing sex crimes. Um, and he essentially got like politically destroyed over it. Ooh. Uh, so in 1930, we get the creation of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. It's the, the FBN. FBN, yeah. The and um, Harry J. Anslinger is referred to sometimes as the Herbert Hoover of the F FDN. So Herbert Hoover is in the FBI. Invented the vacuum. Um, why not? But uh, Anslinger is a huge part of the push for legislation with regards to marijuana. And he is just an unmitigated racist. Like, when you look at his readings, when you look at the testimony he gives over and over again, it's entirely rooted in stereotypes that are based on in race. The quote that I had pulled for this is like, yeah, during some testimony he gave, uh, he said that marijuana is the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind. Most marijuana smokers are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing results from marijuana usage. <laughs> it's hard to tell if he really believed this or if he knew how to get laws passed. Right. Because he was a brilliant propagandist. And it's, it's you know, one of the kind of amazing propaganda stories of the 20th century that we went from feeling essentially neutral about this drug in the early part of the 20th century to, you know, even now it's uh, a point of much contention uh, in the United States, whether this is a, a good thing or a bad thing. And people attach a lot of moral value to it. He put enough stank on marijuana that after decades, it still hasn't scrubbed off. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's the basis of a lot of the later laws. So, um, you know, we get really harsh penalties for marijuana possession through the 30s and 40s and 50s. Um, in the 50s, it's like jail time for possession of a single joint, even. That's crazy. In 1952, the Boggs Act and the 1956 Narcotics Control Act set mandatory sentences for drug-related offenses of two to ten years minimum sense for a first offense marijuana possession. It's the first time. Yeah, you're that's going extreme. To, you're going to the pokey for two yeah. to ten years. But then 
you see a backlash to that, right? Like through the 60s, marijuana becomes popular in counterculture and, uh, you know, like we all know about the hippies. The hippos. Um, but it also spreads through a lot more of the culture than we would think. There are a lot more, you know, housewives and normal people smoking pot. In the 70s, we start to see some of those harsher laws get rolled back, and the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act, I think I got that right, uh, categorized marijuana separately from other narcotics, and it eliminated mandatory minimum sentences. So, like, doing all right. But we know things aren't like that now, so do you know what happened? I know what happened. What was it? Richard Milhouse Nixon. Nixon, yep, and followed up by Reagan. So we got a one-two punch there. And basically, they both use marijuana as a way to, again, fearmonger. They use it as a way to identify who's with me and who's not. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get to 1986 with Reagan, uh, they are pushing through the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, uh, which institutes mandatory sentences for drug-related crimes. Uh, possession of 100 marijuana plants receives the same penalty as possession of 100 grams of heroin. So we're back to treating marijuana like it's super duper bad and really destructive to society, even though we don't really have the evidence of that. Right. And, you know, like we talked earlier a little bit about how several times presidents have called for reports on this. Again, pretty shortly before... Reagan in the 70s, Nixon had called for a report on uh, the destructiveness of marijuana. And uh, Schaefer came back with a report that came to the same conclusions that LaGuardia had come to, which is that there was no evidence that you have an increase in crime. There's no evidence that there's increases in other dangers. Basically, like, meh. <laughs> um, so. It's not health food. But it's not going to end the world either. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's a fair argument that it's, you know, no worse for you than McDonald's. <laughs> well, McDonald's is a Schedule One drug. It ought to be, yeah. It ought to be. For sure. That's what I want given to me after a surgery to I soothe mean, the pain. Those McNuggets are addictive. Oh, Shamrock Shake. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be crack in the Shamrock Shake. I hope so. Otherwise, I'm just addicted to carrageenan and sugar. Well, maybe that too. Maybe that too. Yeah. Okay, so Nixon and Reagan kind of throw harsh penalties back on the old potzioli. Is that the end of the story for pot? Is pot done? It's not. And it's in a really exciting time right now. Woo! Um, in the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, we talked a little bit about in California... There started to be some use of marijuana to treat patients who were dying of AIDS or cancer. Um, it was illegal, but it started to gain some social cachet. And so uh, by 1996, California voters passed Proposition 215, which allows for the sale and medical use of marijuana for patients with AIDS, cancer, and other serious or painful diseases. Oh. Um, so it's a pretty short list at that time. But it's expanded from there to a quite long list of maladies that uh, you can be prescribed marijuana for. Um, and by now, uh, I believe it was 25 states have legalized marijuana use in some way. Four have legalized recreational use. And uh, a number of them have a ballot measure coming up 
for it here in the upcoming election. The past election. The past election. The past election that ended well. But there is a, so there's a really interesting thing um, in that the way people feel about marijuana has changed pretty significantly. Uh, the poll that I was reading earlier today was done by Politico last June, uh, and they found upwards of 50% of the people who they polled, so registered voters, uh, supported the legalization of recreational marijuana, mm-hmm. which is pretty high. Um, when they asked about medical marijuana, that number went up to 87%. So it's huge. But when you start to break down the demographics of that, they're hugely age-specific. So people under the age of uh, 60 feel much more positively about marijuana than people over the age of 60. Hmm. So we are still seeing, I think, the effects of all that propaganda um, because it's been, you know, skewed in the last 20 years or so. Um, That narrative has started to change a little bit. So where do you what do you see for the future of heroina? Boy, heroina, that's the worst. <laughs> no, um I really think that the next thing is going to be this fight over whether or not it comes off being a schedule 1 drug. Yeah. Um because that's really what's in the way of there being large-scale scientific research into marijuana. And we're starting to see more success with people who want to research drugs. Um, For example, they had done some testing in the use of mushrooms um, in the 60s for treatment of things like uh, PTSD um, or psychosis. And uh, they've just now started picking up some of those tests again. So they're starting to look at that in particular for PTSD. So we are starting to see uh, a thawing a little bit of the landscape in terms of drug research here in America, um, in particular drugs that are outside of the you know pharmaceutical realm. You know, the funny thing to me is we are talking about, oh, we need to find out if it's safe and you know, we need to do more scientific tests. Like, America is not the only place in the world. I mean, you can go to Amsterdam and get yourself some pot. You can look around at all those people who are able to legally acquire recreational weed, and Amsterdam isn't ripping itself apart. It is not a hell on earth. That's a good point. And I mean, on, like, neither is Colorado or Washington. Uh, well, I don't know about this <laughs> I mean, there were these really dire predictions, you know, like we still have some of the narrative that like, but if people smoke weed, everything will fall apart. It's and, a gateway drug. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there, there's no data to support that. And in the states that have legalized, a lot of those really dire predictions have not come true. A thing that's interesting is that they have found that the argument uh, for the money has been less effective than they thought. Like, like Colorado, it's a new source of revenue for the state. Yeah, it's a huge source of revenue, both because you don't spend the money on enforcing marijuana-related crimes, and you make tax money on the back end. So it's a double whammy. But um, when lobbyists started working on passing these referendums, they thought that would be a much bigger draw for people than it's ended up being, uh, which is kind of interesting. In the end, the things that seem to draw people tend to be a little more idealistic. There are arguments about uh, social justice 
you know, uh, the sentencing of marijuana crimes very disproportionately affects people of color. And often the punishments for those are, are way out of scale with the crime. So that's a big draw for people. There are some arguments about, uh, you know, your personal liberty and property rights uh, that appeal to the libertarians. Um, there are budget balancing arguments that have to do with the taxes, and that appeals to most people, really. Um, but uh, it's interesting to read some of the lobbyists because they really thought the money would be a much bigger draw than it has been. Maybe part of it is that your average citizen doesn't really think about the budget of their state. You know, they just kind of assume or hope that the state figures it out and that there's enough money for roads and schools mm -hmm. and all that stuff. But if they hear like, oh, the state gets to save so much money, like that doesn't directly affect them as hardcore as like, my son doesn't have to go to jail. That's I don't a good have a point. Son. I mean, uh, joke's on us here in Illinois, I guess. What did Illinois do about pots? Currently, Illinois has legalized medical marijuana, Woo! Um, but it's very strict. So uh, it's new. It is pretty difficult to get a medical marijuana card at this point. It's not quite like the joke that you like go to the doctor and say, you know, I have anxiety and they just give it to you. Um, they're reserving it for specific diagnoses that are fairly severe. It's also, it appears to be quite difficult to get a dispensary or a grow house up and going. Um, and some of that seems to be uh, because the ambiguous legal status of marijuana between the state governments and the federal governments means that most banks can't and won't support it. So you can't get a loan from a bank, for example, to start your business. Uh, also, a lot of people can't put their money in a bank. So it makes it a cash business. And since it's a cash business, you have to have much more intense security than you might otherwise have. Uh, and there are increased opportunities for things like money laundering. So um, it does cause some issues in terms of like getting the business rolling and figuring out how we're going to do this as a state. But it's, it's, uh, it's started a teeny baby way here. Baby ways. Baby ways. Yep. Yeah. There's, there's, uh, good evidence that it's going fine in the other states that have legalized and these like predictions that we'd all be living in a zombie apocalypse in a year have not come to pass. Hmm. I did hear that the number one Girl Scout salesperson a couple of years ago set up shop across the street from a dispensary in uh, Colorado. No. So I gotta say that that kid is one smart cookie. Oh! <laughs> that is very clever. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Betsy, do you know what time it is? I don't know, Tatori. What time is it? It's time for plugs! Time for it's plugs. time for plugs! It's time for plugs, not drugs, but plugs! Give me a hug! Don't... <laughs> I I was not aware there was a whole song. There is a song to plugs, yeah. and it is onerous. I mean, you managed to get butt plugs in there, though. Excuse me? <laughs> not what you intended? <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh -huh. Do you have any plugs that you'd like to share with our internuts? I would love to. Um, primarily right now, I work with a project called Our Fair City. On Never where... heard of it. Oh, yeah. But your idiot roommate knows about it. <laughs> roommate. Uh -huh. Yeah, right? 
Uh, we're a post-apocalyptic sci-fi radio podcast. Uh, and so if those words hit your buttons, come and check us out. If they smush your knobs or twist your dials, <laughs> call a doctor. But if they hit your buttons, check them out on the internet. Yeah. You can find us at OurFairCity.com. Or you can download us on iTunes or Stitcher or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Um, and there are seven seasons up there, so binge away, friends. Yeah, there's a whole lot of Our Fair City. And it's more than just audio. Now there are comical books that you can buy, which my idiot roommate had a hand in writing. Well, and the other big thing that I do with Our Fair City is I plan our launch party each year. Yes. So if uh, Rockin' Party is your thing, you should come and check us out. Uh, we're going to do that roughly, I believe it was next October or maybe August. It'll be up on the Facebook. Yes. The next launch party. The launch parties are big, awesome, sci-fi themed events. I, there was a brilliant performer at the last one doing some sort of character. I, I could not make out who it was, though. Yeah, well, you know, he was okay, I guess. He was all right. <laughs> but yeah, they're, um, they're huge events. We have our own in-house DJ Catnip playing. Uh, we have performers, like you said. There are costumes, there's food, there's drinks. It's, it's a good time. And there was once a giant ant. And there was once a giant ant. A and once and future ant. <laughs> I, I mean, like, we are always trying to outdo ourselves, so come and come and check us out. Brexit, Detore has plugs. What are your plugs, Detore? I'll tell you. Check out Blaster Podcast on iTunes, and please give it a five-star review. Uh, even if you don't feel like typing in words, just give it the five stars because of some stupid algorithm. I don't know. I'm just saying what other podcasters say. But seriously, if you have feedback for me, email me. Uh, you can find me at blasterpodcast at gmail.com or tweet me. My Twitter is at AskDetore. Also, if you like the show and you want to hear more of it and support it and make it gooder and better and stronger and faster and buy us free medical dope, <laughs> except for the last one, um, then find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash blastropodcast. That's, that's all I got. Do you have anything else? That's all I got. All right. Then let's leave the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Detour. Thanks for being on, Detour. Thanks for being on the show. Hey. Good night, everybody. The Blaster Podcast theme song was composed by Stephen Poon, www.timecrashband.com. Blaster Podcast is a proud member of the Chicago Podcast Cooperative. If you like this show, then check out some of their other offerings, like Alka Hollywood. Clint, Jared, and a guest talk about one movie each week, old or new, good or bad, and create a custom cocktail and drinking game for it. I highly recommend Alka Hollywood, y'all. Check it out. Did I just say y'all?